Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Today's guest is O'Reilly author Adam Gibson, whose new book with Josh Patterson is about to come out. It's called Deep Learning, A Practitioner's Approach. Uh, Adam is also co-founder and CTO of SkyMind.io, and uh, they're also doing a tutorial at Stratus San Jose called Deep Learning in the Enterprise. And that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk with Adam, because uh, Adam is one of the uh, more active uh, people in terms of bringing deep learning techniques into enterprise. And the other reason I wanted to talk to Adam is that uh, Adam is now based in uh, Tokyo, Japan. So we share a uh, interest in uh, the Asia Pacific region. So we will go over the big data, uh, data science and AI scene in Asia as well. And uh, finally, uh, of course, Adam is the co-creator of DL4J, one of the early frameworks for uh, doing deep learning in the JVM. And as I have been uh, telling people, I believe this is the year that uh, deep learning will be uh, used more widely by the data science and big data communities. And uh, one of the more interesting frameworks that has come out recently is a framework called Big DL from Intel, a distributed deep learning framework built on top of Apache Spark. But that's the subject of another episode. So for today, here's my conversation with Adam Gibson. Adam Gibson, co-founder and CTO of SkyMind.io. Welcome to the data show. Thank you for having me, Ben. So first off, let's talk a little bit about your background uh, in looking at your LinkedIn profile. It seems like uh, you've always been kind of interested in the data side of technology. Is that correct? Yes. And um, at some point, you kind of... So what year do you think you started uh, paying attention to deep learning? 2013. 2013. And what about deep learning in particular really got you excited? So I was attending a conference uh, in San Francisco where people started really first talking about it. And I loved all the applications, you know, in search, voice, images. And I, I loved how what they did was, especially WordVac, uh, the idea that you could take, you know, like I, my background's in NLP. That's what I spent most of my time doing. You know, a lot of my previous startups did some sort of text analytics. So when I saw, you know, and I saw the brutal feature engineering that you had to deal with, you know, where you had to be like, oh, prefix and suffix. And these things occurred together. That, that, that annoyed me. So when I saw word embeddings, I'm like, what? You know, that... That, that, that set off a light bulb moment where it's like, oh, representation learning. And that's kind of, that's what really clicked for me. And that's when I started really looking into it. So that's interesting because you're really coming at it from someone who was already doing data science. And so mm -hmm. you had specific needs because most people, I think, initially just read about it. And uh, most of what people read about are in uh, speech and images, right? But so you basically, uh, sounds like you... So something about it that you could you thought you could use right away. Yes. Yeah. Word effect was an immediate use case for me. That 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 was I was really interested in seeing if it could replace a lot of the techniques that I was used to, you know, traditional conditional random fields, maxent models and things of that nature. And deep learning has since uh, you know, with embeddings has since supplanted a lot of these techniques. Uh, one of my favorite papers actually uh, came out I think 2014 it was called NLP almost from scratch. That that right there, you know, it, it's again, it's just this idea of uh, learning word, learning word context automatically. Again, like it, it's just 
I'm, I'm actually the biggest believer in text as the most potential because that's that's what we have the most data for. Images and audio kind of, you know, it, it, look, it looks cool. You know, you can get it generate to play music and Bach and all that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think the most practical application was text. Uh, that's what I understood. And I think that's what we have the most data for. So I think that's what's going to end up impacting quite a bit. And, and yeah. so um, 2013, I guess we're talking what? What tools are out there? Piano, Torch? Piano and Torch, yeah. That was really, like, yeah, Cafe, I don't even think it had been invented yet. Or Cafe, uh, and Cafe was always like a, a computer vision. Right, yeah. Library. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so at some point then you guys, uh, so was it just you who decided to work on uh, DL4J? Uh, no, so I had met, uh, so I'd actually met uh, the co-author on our Riley book, Deepening a Practitioner's Approach, uh, Josh Patterson, at the same conference. He was a speaker, and he he was coming from Cloudera and doing consulting, and he was doing Deepening and Hadoop at the time. So I figured, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm interested. You know, all I did, I I only I only ever did machine learning in Java. Uh, I hadn't even really coded in Python much by that point. Um, so I was doing machine learning in Java, and he was doing it on Hadoop. And I had done some Hadoop stuff myself, and I figured, oh, well, there's probably overlap here. So I just started talking to him about it. I wasn't sure where the conversation was going to go, but that was basically DL4J uh, from there. And so why? what prompted you guys to do DL4J? Was it the desire to, to have a deep learning library in Java and the JVM? Or why not use the existing libraries around at that point? Well, I wasn't a big believer in anything but Java. It's all I'd ever known. Uh, and it was all, it was kind of what I based my career on. Like I got my start in enterprise Java, J2EE, and then I transitioned to big data. Uh, so I just never saw a use case for not Java, uh, and all of, you know, and then kind of going further into my career, you know, you see Scala and all these other things. And then, you know, uh, you know, my first really, uh, I think big exposure to Python was when I started teaching data science in San Francisco, uh, later, uh, later on in like early 2014. Um, and, and I saw it, and, you know, so I was like, okay, well, this is what people, most people do machine learning with, apparently. I was living in my own bubble in the Midwest where everything was Java. Uh, I had the opposite problem here where everything's a Python bubble. So I kind of got to see the two side by side, and I never really saw a compelling reason to switch. Uh, and a lot of it was just because I, you know, I looked at the Python runtime and I saw all the limitations of it. You know, this, and, I, and I, also, I also discovered I hated uh, dynamic typing. And it kind of, you know, so all it did was kind of reinforce my, my, my existing beliefs. Uh, if that makes sense. Well, here's a here's a compelling reason to switch, which is there were already libraries. Right, <laughs> and, and and so for me, I I was used to writing my own machine learning algorithms at the time, though. So I had I had hand implemented SVMs, I had hand implemented CRFs. Um, so I was used to I was used to looking at open source code, understanding it, and implementing my own algorithms. So for me, it for me it was it wasn't really a big deal to go ahead and just port everything to Java. That just made sense because I wanted I wanted everything I wanted everything in one place. So like how, I can't put a pipe. Yeah, go ahead. How did you talk Josh into this? Um, well, Josh and I, so Josh and I actually it was kind of interesting. Basically, he he was working on something called Metronome, uh, which was uh, basically it was based on the Jeff Dean paper from 2012 uh, that did parameter averaging. Uh, so he did something called iterative reduce with that. Uh, and it was also ba ba loosely based on some of John Langford's stuff out of Microsoft Research that was doing Vopal Wabbit. Vopal Wabbit. Um, yeah. So he was doing that. And I was like, okay, cool. I need distributed because I was just doing, I was just doing single node originally just to, you know, just to play with it and understand it. And, you know, so it was like, well, you know, you're working on this, but, you know, for you, it's a side project. And for me, like, I'm trying to actually, like, I'm trying to, like, base a business on this of some kind. 
you know, why not, you know, let, let's, let's, let's reduce the amount of code that's going to take to, for both of us to write, you know, we're the, probably the only two people in existence doing this. Uh, and we, it turned out we really were. And from there, it just kind of exploded. It was like, well, you know, no, no, no sense of not working together on this. So actually, yeah, that's interesting. So this ties into what you're doing now, actually. But before we get there, uh, yeah, you mentioned CRF. So uh, did you ever look into Mallet? That was a Java, right? Yep, I did. I used Mallet. Uh, my favorite library by far to use was CRF Suite, though, from C. Uh, so I, I did C in Java. Uh, I was a big fan of the ClearTK uh, uh, processing toolkit. Uh, it was it was based on the the UEMA framework from from IBM that they donated to the Apache Foundation, um, and ClearTK was built on top of that. So I use that framework quite a bit, and I use CRS from that. So you so DL4j started when 2013? 2013, yes. 2013. So at at this point, what would you say in terms of maturity? So number of contributors and number of users of the at least the open source version. Um, so yeah, uh, you know it's it's in production at quite a few companies now. Uh, you know, m you know I randomly hear about uh, various companies like uh, say Bloomberg, uh, big banks, uh, among others who have kind of who have at least a production DL4j deployment or have used it, you know, for their Spark jobs and things of that nature. Um, so I, you know, we find out we found out about these things about you know a lot later. Uh, but you know, adoption's been good. You know, IBM uses us in eight countries. Uh, so I see I see various uh, IBM people from all over the world e emailing me about power and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, so the, the adoption in enterprise has been good. Um, we actually have uh, we we actually have some some stuff we're working on with Oracle as well. So Oracle has featured us a few times in some of their Java stuff that they're, that they're doing. Um, so you know it's it's mainly been who you guess the legacy kind of IT vendors as well as uh, what I'll say you know like the the Hadoop vendors. Uh, have also picked us up because of the just the first class it runs in Java and and all that. Uh, so Nvidia has also adopted us as their primary kind of uh, big data uh, big data partner for their DGX, and so that's all open source and all that. So you know, so they they kind of you know, so people a lot of people kind of big companies kind of see this as a window into the big data ecosystem versus you know research in Python. You know, it's just a different user base. You know, usually like the light bends the light bends and pivotals of the world uh, also use us for their products. Um, so, so maturity is there. Uh, other companies have told me it's good stuff. What about so, uh, so? Are all the committers at SkyMind or so? So we actually have quite a few external contributors. Um, many of them come. Uh, actually, it's a mix of German academia, Canadian. So we we have some Canadians in there. We have some Japanese in there, and then we get a lot of one-off contributions from you know actually various. Uh, there, a lot of Apache people have come through and and have contributed some code to us. Uh, so it's it's a mix of drive-bys, but you know at the end of the day, you know a community needs kind of a core kind of core group, and so having a commercial entity behind it is kind of appealing. Yep. Um, so my, I would say I would say I would say we drive the project, uh, but you know get a lot of get a lot of people who kind of use DL4j in production and just contribute you know things for their use case. So for people who who are not that familiar with DL4j, so what would you say? are some of the key features that came out in 2016? Uh, oh man, a lot. So I would say our, our biggest, our biggest thing was our, our C++ rewrite. Uh, so, you know, we, we basically, over the course of 2014 and 2015, uh, we had tried to uh, use existing matrix, you know, matrix packages in Java, but end up writing our own. But first, at first we had a Java implementation of the internals and we were doing a little bit of CUDA C back then. And then eventually we just ported everything to one C++ code base and it sped up the code base by a factor of 10. 
Uh, and from there, from there, we've only added on things like a new user interface, among other things. Uh, and I would say I would like to also feature our Keras import. So basically allowing the Python community to talk to their data engineering team and say, okay, you code in Java, I did this Python thing, just use this import thing and then take this to production and you don't have to worry about uh, trying to get Python code in there. Um, so so we've, had, we've seen a lot of interest and uptake from that. Does that make sense? Yep. And so cool. um, you also had um, some developments around Spark integration. Yes. So what was that about? Uh, so Spark, you know, Spark is, Spark is, our Spark integration has been fairly stable for a while now. I mean, I think we did one touch on it this year, uh, but beyond that, have largely optimized it a little bit with the help of, uh, you know, Sean Owen is from Cloudera sent us a couple pull requests among others. Uh, but we, you know, we've mostly just, we've mostly just been using it in production and it's just been fine. You know, like we, uh, you know, our Spark integration started a couple of years ago. We had we had parameter, we had distributed deep learning before it was cool on, you know, just MapReduce jobs and, you know, Spark with just map and reduce on, you know, the from the RDD DSL. And that's been fine. You know, so we, we've so we've had that integration for a while. Like the only major improvements I think we've done is adding our uh, library DataVec, you know, integrating that more closely with the with the Spark training. So one of the things I'm I'm seeing, uh, and I think it will be a lot more clearer as 2017 uh, uh, progresses is that, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, deep learning, at least in the past, has been the province of researchers and HPC type mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. I think increasingly you're seeing more and more big data and data scientists yes. uh, doing deep learning. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that tools like yours, DL4J, just fit nicely into their uh, pipeline and their uh, tool set, right? So it it runs on a Spark cluster, for example, right? So right. Um, is this something that uh, you're also seeing? That uh, so I think there's Adam. I think there'll still be the people who are doing the cutting edge stuff, the people who are going to be running it on really big uh, uh, GPU supercomputers, but then. I think that we're also going to start seeing more and more people just running deep learning as another kind of machine learning. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I think you'll see those workflows coincide, but I think one thing that's been missing from this picture is the fact that you'll, I think you'll see GPUs uh, start to penetrate the big data stack. We've seen that with the adoption of Apache Mesos. We've seen that lately with a lot of the announcements around Spark GPU integration. Uh, you know, we've seen that, you know, we've seen commodity boxes from Amazon kind of commodity, you know, kind of democratize access to large-scale GPU machines on, you know, for, for pennies on the dollar. You know, so I think what will I think what will actually start to happen is we'll start to see people with Elastic MapReduce and associated jobs like that, uh, commodity compute, start to leverage GPUs as part of their overall workload. They may not use GPUs for everything, but they will use, they'll, they'll, I, think GPU, I think GPUs will at least be a part of commodity clusters. So I think what we're going to start to see is actually some convergence of these technologies. But some of these uh, components will have to be written so that they can run in GPUs, right? So uh, Yes. So not just deep learning, but the other big data components. Exactly. And so, so IBM, you know, I think IBM, IBM has been pushing that quite a bit as well. Um, IBM Tokyo specifically has, I think, some of the coolest work in this space, which is just the ability to compile JVM bytecode to PTX. PTX is kind of the CUDA bytecode, so to speak. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more work in that direction, like just GPU enablement, maybe not directly programming in C, 
but maybe at least uh, allowing things to run on uh, CUDA and the GPU. So now the the CPU folks also have libraries and accelerators and mm-hmm. and things like that. So maybe they'll get to the point where they're close enough in performance. Yeah, and so the right. So the competition there is going to be. I, I think I think they will get it fast enough. Uh, you know, like the nice landing architecture. Some of the other accelerators are definitely. Yeah, yeah. So the whole the whole convenience versus performance trade off. Yeah, like when it's well, yeah, and that's that's kind of our thing is when is it performant enough and when is it easy to use. So. Yeah, CPUs are definitely, uh, CPUs can be easier to use. They're easier to program for, and more people know how to use those. Um, but that being said, in order to get speed out of this, you still need something like OpenCL or something. Uh, if you're going to, if you're going to use coprocessors that NVIDIA call, you know, or sorry, Intel calls their, uh, their stuff, you know, the Xeon Phi processors, if you're going to leverage those properly, you're still going to need some sort of language or some sort of acceleration, you know, code in there in order to make it work. So they do have their own set of tools that will run on those though. So the competition's definitely heating up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also Intel has a bunch of things that, a bunch of companies that inquire, including Nirvana. That FPGAs. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we don't, they might also play a part uh, into in the story, right? So. Yeah, like, so they're doing, I mean, so they had, you know, they had the Altera acquisition as well, you know, so that was, you know, Microsoft was using them for a lot of their FPGA deep learning stuff. There's a lot of joint research there. So it, I think what we're going to start to see is, you know, we have, you know, Intel also did, uh, you know, deep learning specific instructions in their processors now. So there's like assembly instructions now for specific op- vector operations, you know, so again, like, I think basically 2017, Competition will heat up. Like uh, AMD also did. They just released their new Radeon stuff as well, uh, and so they're they're starting to push into a lot of a lot of deep learning as well. So yeah, the competition's still heating up. You know, you know, if I had to say one thing, I would say specialized ASICs, uh, while faster, uh, are still harder to program for, and the ecosystem isn't as open. So I think maybe we'll start to see maybe some of those tools kind of becoming more mainstream in 2017, especially with Intel uh, owning a significant uh, share in that space. Yeah, and I, I recently spoke with uh, Greg Dimas, who's a researcher at Baidu, used to work at NVIDIA, and his perspective is the ASIC, while interesting, he's not convinced that they really are the value proposition, whether or not the value proposition is there vis-a-vis GPUs is is still in doubt. Yes. In terms of, you know, because you have to build that whole new fab for these things, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's going to take, it's it's very expensive to make it, to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. And um, so one of the things that uh, struck me with what you said earlier is that it seems like from the onset, as someone who was always uh, a working data scientist, Someone in the sense that you were always shipping and and making sure things run on ran on production. That's why you were interested in in Java. So that's always been part of your DNA. And so I, in many ways, uh, while you were interested in deep learning, even the way you described it, you were interested in it from the point of view of how can I use this to solve business problems. And so now you have this company, SkyMind.io, and that's exactly what you guys are doing, right? So you're you're taking deep learning, bringing it into the enterprise, but then in a way that's a solution. And is it fair to say that in do enterprises even care that you're using deep learning, or they're only they only care that you're you're solving their problem? Right, and everything, yeah, exactly. Everything in enterprise is ROI driven. They don't know that the newest deep learning paper just came out from Google. Um, they're not going to get clone a random repository and try it out and just try to put it in production. They don't do that. They want to understand ROI. They want, you know, they also read just, I think, a different set of content. 
than most people do. Uh, so the typical enterprise developer uh, doesn't like they don't they don't read that stuff. Like they work, they work a job, they have a goal, and they have a budget, and they need to figure out what to do with that with that budget. You know, as, as it relates to their job at their company. Uh, and in their company is usually a for-profit corporation trying to make money or trying to increase margins for shareholders. So everything's shareholder driven at these companies. So you have uh, teams of developers who are just implementing business logic. Uh, and so that's a very different uh, set of developers than what you would have, uh, you know, in say a Stanford research or what have you. Frankly, they may also have some existing machine learning tool in production in their production environment. Right. And that, you know, and frankly, they don't care if it's linear regression or random forest either. Um, you know, and, and actually most of these tools, actually, what's really crazy is actually I see a lot of rules engines yet. Um, so machine learning is actually machine learning has barely penetrated the Fortune 2000. Despite all these tools existing, most of them don't have it in production because they don't they don't see a point in adopting it. Um, so I think there's still a big, you know, I think uh, Intel said this right. I, I think it's still, at least for enterprise adoption, it's still fairly early for even machine learning yet. Um, so I think what we're going to so I think what we're you know, what we're starting to see is deep learning is enough of a kind of enough of a bump in accuracy for some problems, uh, like especially anything related to behavior that it's worth finally considering. And that's that's kind of the uptake, some of the uptake we're seeing. So when you go into an enterprise, uh, how much education do you have to provide in terms of machine learning uh, in general and deep learning in particular? Well, I mean, obviously, so there's there's a very traditional business development process you follow. And and part of that is education, right? Like, so you tell them, this is the ROI. Uh, these are the trends in the market. Here is where everything is going. And from here, why is this, you know, why is this above an accuracy over traditional methods? And so what we typically do with customers is something called a proof of concept, where what we will do is we will go in, we will show the customer that the deep learning works on their data, and then we will then tell them how to, how to deploy it to production. And so we'll show them this is a path to you actually getting ROI out of this model. So they don't necessarily have to know, they don't even have to have the expertise because deep learning talent's already scarce as it is. And many of them don't want to work at these, you know, these large, these large organizations. Um, but they, they, you know, because they're ROI driven, they're not research driven. Um, so that's that's kind of so so it's education it's stepping them through the process and it's 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 handholding and making sure they understand the value of it as they go and i would imagine being based on java is a winning argument in many cases in in an enterprise environment right so the the enterprise environment is typically made up of a spring application spring is kind of the it's kind of the ruby and rails for java but it's been around a long time uh, and it's kind of dominated most kind of enterprise deployments so you have a spring based application you know they're they're starting to sort of look at microservices now and some of the broader kind of systems architecture trends so they're slowly might you know they might be migrating to closure they might be migrating to Scala, but they're not uh, they're not leaving the JDM. So you have that on the kind of the product stack. And then they just said, well, this big data thing is the same thing as what I'm running on my my existing like product cluster. So I understand this already. So central IT kind of knows central IT kind of knows what to do with a jar file. Um, so that's appealing. So the fact that you can just give a, a, a jar file to central IT and then they can deploy it, uh, that, that alleviates a lot of concerns and re re basically reduces time to market. Uh, with new with new solutions. So as long as it's in a palatable format for them to deploy, uh, they're happy. What percentage of the people you engage with are already using some of these big data components? Forget about deep learning, Spark, Hadoop, Kafka, those kinds of things. Yes. So that's that's so what what we're what we're seeing is uh, a lot of a lot of people uh, that we engage with are looking to make new investments, and most of them have like an existing kind of BI stack usually. Uh, some of them may not even be doing machine learning. 
Uh, some of them have a machine learning team and they have a specific use case they want to work on. So it's been kind of a mix, but they usually have some sort of, you know, existing kind of Apache Spark deployment or, you know, just old school MapReduce. Um, so one of the things that uh, we've talked about in the past is Asia and you are now based in Tokyo and you're based there for a reason uh, because uh, it seems like you guys are uh, getting a lot of customers and traction in Asia. So why is Asia a good market for uh, DL4J and uh, SkyMind tools? So Asia, so in Asia, cloud is a swear word and Java is everywhere. Um, so the, a lot of a lot of our uptake comes from the fact that uh, large companies, large organizations, already deploy Java, and they're a lot more. Cons- they're actually uh, on the IT side. They're a lot more conservative in their kind of uh, their 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 investments there. So they don't want to change your product stack. But they want to, interestingly, they want to invest more in AI than North America. So there's actually a gigantic race going on in Asia right now. You know, this kind of started with AlphaGo and kind of really ballooned from there. And we've seen kind of, we've actually seen an uptake from that because of that. So you have a lot of existing IT organizations that have Java stacks that don't know how to deploy uh, something new, or they want to deploy something new, but, you know, it's hard for them to adopt something. So we're, we're kind of, a, we're a great sweet spot for them. Because you know we're you know we're compatible with a lot of the existing frameworks and their methodologies, but you know they can use it in a language they understand. So then uh, are they so because uh, uh, they're willing to engage with you? So then uh, do they have do, are they already using machine learning? Most of these. Uh... Um, yes. Yes. So some. So, well, so I'd say about I'd say about half of these organizations are using machine learning in some way. Um, but a big a big thing for us is just translating our documentation to these foreign languages because one of the things with Japanese, Korean, and Mandarin is the fact that you have uh, a lot of speakers or kind of a lot of uh, native engineers on their own island uh, with very limited documentation in these foreign languages. So the fact that the fact that we translate our docs in the first place. And have people who support them in various in their own native language uh, has also helped quite a bit. So not only do they get to deploy it to their production IT stack, but then they also get first class support in a language that they're familiar with. So you started out by describing that you got interested in deep learning because you were doing a lot of text mining in NLP. So has that played out in uh, your current company, or or are you actually using deep learning for other types of data, not text? So I would say the bulk of, um, you know, we wrote, I wrote the first uh, Word of Vec implementation for Java, actually. And that kind of got uptake on, from there. And so in early 2013, that was a lot of our growth was from Word of Vec. Uh, but then from there, kind of, you know, like I'd say about mid-2014, we started doing a lot more anomaly detection. And that's kind of been, that from there, that's kind of what we've been doing is everything is time series now at this point. Because it turns out a lot of people have time series data. And they still have a hard time doing feature engineering on that kind of thing. So a lot of organizations are interested in applying deep learning to see if they can, you know, maybe just come up with a baseline feature vector and then they don't have to worry about trying to come up with more advanced features and they can just use deep learning to kind of brute force learn patterns. So that's been the bulk of our activity since then, yes. Actually, uh, a mutual friend of ours is uh, getting kind of the same uh, market response, you know, Christopher Nguyen at Arimo. They're also kind of doing deep learning, but actually even more packaged than you even maybe. But uh, right. they're also seeing a lot of uptick in time series. Right. Which actually is interesting. So one of the things that is also interesting is I think kind of we've been talking a lot about IoT the last few years. But now I think as more and more of these devices get sensors, many more of these devices are going to get smarter. Right. So there will be intelligence at the edge. And frankly, I think that there's going to be too much data 
even if you use the cloud, there's going to be too much data to send to the cloud if there's a lot of devices, right? So the edge right. has the edge has to be smarter just in what it's going to process and send to the cloud, right? Right. And so then in the cloud, maybe you develop the models, the aggregate data gets, and then the models get pushed back to the edge. And as you described earlier, compressed. There'll be compressed right. representations of this network, right? Yes. So I was just actually, before uh, we started this conversation, I was just talking with a friend of mine who spends a lot of time in China uh, helping companies with this type of edge intelligence. Uh, and he's seeing a lot, a lot of uh, interest in these types of technologies. So deep learning in particular is part of the equation, but that's only one part of this big, big kind of integration and pipeline. Right. And so what are you looking forward to in terms of uh, 2017 projects and uh, roadmap for DL4J? So DL4J's roadmap in 2017, a lot of it is going to be focused on scale. So we, you know, so we're going to be introducing a large-scale parameter server. Um, we're going to be introducing, uh, actually, our, in our matrix library, we're going to be adding sparse support finally. Um, there's been a lot of interest from the Spark community to, to add uh, our matrix library, kind of quote-unquote NumPy for Java and D4J to the stack uh, because it kind of represents something that we're kind of missing, which is just uh, something Java-based. So you can use it from either Java, Scala, or you know, any interface, but also has tensors, first-class GPU support, among other things. So I would say, and, and then also expansion of our, uh, our, our reinforcement learning and, and Arbiter libraries. Arbiter is uh, at-scale model, model, model scoring, model, model hyperparameter search. Um, so it's actually not uh, DL4J itself, I guess. Um, DL, for DL4J itself, just that library uh, is probably just going to more be focused on adding new layers. So a lot of what we'll be doing is uh, so, future. So you yeah, mean uh, the, when you say that library, you mean the linear algebra library? The linear algebra, yes, yes. Uh, what, and what, then, uh, yeah. what is that called? There was a library that a friend of mine wrote for Java called JBLAS a while Mikio. ago. Mikio, yep. Yeah, Mikio, we yeah. tried using it, yep. We tried using it, but he's since retired from yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's not maintaining it. He's not actively maintaining it, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And, so, and so, Netlib, Netlib Java is in a similar position. And that's currently what a lot of people use for Spark. But uh, Sam Halliday has since moved on to do Ensign and uh, the Scala text editor. So there's really no one commercially maintaining a linear algebra library on the JVM anymore but us, right. at least as far as that I, I can see. Right, right, right. So, so then you become the default uh, linear algebra library. So then uh, once the Spark community adopts you, then you're there, right? So Yep, exactly. And then I guess finally just... Uh, feature parity with Keras, I guess, is, a, is kind of our next thing. Is just and just you know finalizing some kind of some of our functionality, you know, because we have computation graphs, but we've only really added uh, features, you know, for business and as we've needed them. Uh, but we're hoping to, you know, we're hoping to kind of lean on the Keras community uh, to add, you know, to add missing features or go to production or what have you. So we're we're hoping to uh, kind of open up the community to adding more layers and making sure that that's easier to do. Uh, maybe rating layers in Scala or. So, like that. so by Keras, you mean I use Keras, maybe I develop something in TensorFlow, export something that can be run in DL4J, is that? Yes. Yeah, so model import. Yeah, so model import for kind of for production or for the JVM or maybe maybe you have pre-trained models in, in that you just want to, like from a model zoo, and you just want to import them and run them on, on Java. Um, so that's that's a pretty common use case that we see. So what is what is the artifact? Is there like is there like the PMML for for Keras? Uh, yeah, so it has its own kind of binary for, file format. Uh, but what I what I'd like to say about it is 
they have they're kind of becoming the kind of the industry standard for deep learning in, in that Microsoft has adopted them as for CNTK. Google has adopted them for the front end for TensorFlow. We've adopted them for kind of our, you know, kind of our Python interface. And we also ported uh, Keras to Scala for ScalaNet because we were a big fan of API. Um, so even just their binary format uh, becoming the standard is kind of what we're hoping for. And they have kind of a JSON configuration for their for theirs. Cool. So there will be a lot more alternatives. Uh, uh, there will be a lot of options for big data and data scientists uh, who want to do deep learning in production. So obviously uh, you've got uh, DL4J and SkyMind, but uh, I'm not sure what the status of Paddle Paddle is. But they're growing. Yeah, they're, they're growing. growing. They're growing. And then Intel is going to release Big DL on Jason Dice thing. This uh, yep. distributed uh, synchronous mini batch stochastic gradient descent uh, written on top of Spark. Yeah, so this is the year that I think uh, data scientists can really start taking advantage of this. And one of the ways they can learn more is to get Adam and Josh's book, which is an O'Reilly book. And uh, they also will be teaching a tutorial at Strata San Jose in March called Scalable Deep Learning for the Enterprise with DL4J. So it seems like uh, education is also going to be a big part of what you guys do in 2017. Yes, uh, we're, you know, we plan on doing a lot of videos around Keras training as well. So, you know, taking, you know, end-to-end training where you take a, an, an IPython notebook, you train a Keras model, and then you actually deploy it to production in, in the same, in the same time frame uh, from, from a Scala cell. Uh, so there's kind of, I think there's still, you know, I think, you know, there's going to be an encouragement to go to production of deep learning and really start to explore the business applications. Uh, so kind of an end-to-end workflow uh, is where a lot of people will be seeing, I think. It's going to take some education to get there, though. So before we go, you did, you did uh, mention something that uh, caught my attention, where you said uh, in Asia, cloud computing is not as popular. Um, right. Is that generally, so when you say Asia, do you mean mostly Japan? Japan, Korea, and China. Um, so China actually in 2018 will be, uh, there will be a mandate to move more stuff to the cloud, but they have uh, tighter data security laws in Asia than they do, I think, than they do in the U.S. But, you know, even, in, even especially, in, uh, you know, a lot of our businesses in FinServe, and in, even in FinServe, we, we, you know, we see uh, very tight regulations. So if they move anything to the cloud, it's like one, it's like one team. And it's like, you know, a very niche problem. But, no, but a lot of the, you know, despite the hype, a lot of things a lot of things are still on-prem in, in certain in certain legacy industries. So I think Asia in general uh, is going to they'll they'll move to the cloud slowly, but I think the the adoption there is going to be slower versus in uh, the states. Well, Adam Gibson, this has been great. Thank you for being on the Data Show. Thank you. It was great uh, talking to you, Ben. We now have over 80 free reports on many topics in data science, big data, and AI. They cover trends, tools, techniques, and applications. Go to O'Reilly.com data slash free for a complete list of our free reports. You can follow Adam Gibson on Twitter at agibsonccc. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. 